Chapter six point five of the nine eleven Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The nine eleven Commission Report. Chapter six point five. The new administration's approach. The Bush administration in its first months faced many problems other than terrorism. They included the collapse of the Middle East peace process and, in April, a crisis over a U.S. so-called spy plane brought down in Chinese territory. The new administration also focused heavily on Russia, a new nuclear strategy that allowed missile defenses, Europe, Mexico and the Persian Gulf. In the spring, reporting on terrorism surged dramatically. In Chapter 8, we will explore this reporting and the ways agencies responded. These increasingly alarming reports, briefed to the President and top officials, became part of the context in which the new administration weighed its options for policy on Al-Qaeda. Except for a few reports that the CSG considered and apparently judged to be unreliable, none of these pointed specifically to possible Al-Qaeda action inside the United States, although the CSG continued to be concerned about the domestic threat the mosaic of threat intelligence came from the counter-terrorist centre, which collected only abroad. Its reports were not supplemented by reports from the FBI. Clark had expressed concern about an al-Qaeda presence in the United States, and he worried about an attack on the White House by, quote, Hezbollah, Hamas, al-Qaeda, and other terrorist organizations, end quote. In May, President Bush announced that Vice President Cheney would himself lead an effort looking at preparations for managing a possible attack by weapons of mass destruction and at more general problems of national preparedness. The next few months were mainly spent organizing the effort and bringing an admiral from the Sixth Fleet back to Washington to manage it. The Vice President's task force was just getting underway when the 9-11 attack occurred. On May 29th, at Tenet's request, Rice and Tenet converted their usual weekly meeting into a broader discussion on Al-Qaeda. Participants included Clark, CTC Chief Kofa Black, and Richard, a group chief with authority over the Bin Laden unit. Rice asked about, quote, taking the offensive, end quote, and whether any approach could be made to influence Bin Laden or the Taliban. Clark and Black replied that the CIA's ongoing disruption activities were taking the offensive, and that bin Laden could not be deterred. A wide-ranging discussion then ensued about breaking the back of bin Laden's organization. Tenet emphasized the ambitious plans for covert action that the CIA had developed in December 2000. In discussing the draft authorities for this program in March, CIA officials had pointed out that the spending level envisioned for these plans was larger than the CIA's entire current budget for counterterrorism covert action. It would be a multi-year program, requiring such levels of spending for about five years. The CIA official, Richard, told us that Rice got it. He said she agreed with his conclusions about what needed to be done, although he complained to us that the policy process did not follow through quickly enough. Clark and Black were asked to develop a range of options for attacking bin Laden's organization from the least to most ambitious. Rice and Hatley asked Clark and his staff to draw up the new presidential directive. On June 7, Hatley circulated the first draft, describing it as an admittedly ambitious program for confronting al-Qaeda. 
the draft NSPD's goal was to, quote, eliminate the Al-Qaeda network of terrorist groups as a threat to the United States and to friendly governments, end quote. It called for a multi-year effort involving diplomacy, covert action, economic measures, law enforcement, public diplomacy, and, if necessary, military efforts. The State Department was to work with other governments to end all Al-Qaeda sanctuaries and also to work with the Treasury Department to disrupt terrorist financing. The CIA was to develop an expanded covert action program, including significant additional funding and aid to anti-Taliban groups. The draft also tasked OMB with ensuring that sufficient funds to support this program were found in U.S. budgets from fiscal years 2002 to 2006. Rice viewed this draft directive as the embodiment of a comprehensive new strategy employing all instruments of national power to eliminate the Al-Qaeda threat. Clark, however, regarded the new draft as essentially similar to the proposal he had developed in December 2000 and put forward to the new administration in January 2001. In May or June, Clark asked to be moved from his counterterrorism portfolio to a new set of responsibilities for cybersecurity. He told us that he was frustrated with his role and with an administration that he considered not, quote, serious about al-Qaeda, end quote. If Clark was frustrated, he never expressed it to her, Rice told us. Diplomacy in Blind Alleys Afghanistan the new administration had already begun exploring possible diplomatic options, retracing many of the paths travelled by its predecessors. U.S. envoys again pressed the Taliban to turn bin Laden, quote, over to a country where he could face justice, end quote, and repeated, yet again, the warning that the Taliban would be held responsible for any al-Qaeda attacks on U.S. interests. The Taliban's representatives repeated their old arguments. Deputy Secretary of State Richard Armitage told us that while U.S. diplomats were becoming more active on Afghanistan through the spring and summer of 2001, quote, it would be wrong for anyone to characterize this as a dramatic shift from the previous administration. End quote. Footnote. In early July 2001, shortly before retiring, Ambassador Milam met one last time with Taliban Deputy Foreign Minister Jalil in Islamabad. Milam tried to dispel any confusion about where bin Laden fit into U.S.-Taliban relations. The Saudi terrorist was the issue, and he had to be expelled. The State Department's South Asia Bureau called for a less confrontational stance toward the Taliban. It opposed a policy to overthrow the Taliban and was cautious about aiding the Northern Alliance. End footnote. In deputies' meetings at the end of June... Tenet was asked to assess the prospects for Taliban cooperation with the United States on al-Qaeda. The NSC staff was tasked to flesh out options for dealing with the Taliban. Revisiting these issues tried the patience of some of the officials who felt they had already been down these roads and who found the NSC's procedures slow. Quote, we weren't going fast enough, Armitage told us. Clark kept arguing that moves against the Taliban and al-Qaeda should not have to wait months for a larger review of U.S. policy in South Asia. For the government, Hadley said to us, we moved it along as fast as we could move it along. As all hope in moving the Taliban faded, debate revived about giving covert assistance to the regime's opponents. Clark and the CIA's Kofa Black renewed the push to aid the Northern Alliance, 
Clark suggested starting with modest aid, just enough to keep the Northern Alliance in the fight and tie down Al-Qaeda terrorists without aiming to overflow the Taliban. Rice, Hatley, and the NSC staff member for Afghanistan, Zalmay Galilzad, told us they opposed giving aid to the Northern Alliance alone. They argued that the program needed to have a big part for Pashtun opponents of the Taliban. They also thought the program should be conducted on a larger scale than had been suggested. Clark concurred with the idea of a larger program, but he warned that delay risked the Northern Alliance final defeat at the hands of the Taliban. During the spring, the CIA, at the NSC's request, had developed draft legal authorities, a presidential finding, to undertake a large-scale program of covert assistance to the Taliban's foes. The draft authorities expressly stated that the goal of the assistance was not to overthrow the Taliban. But even this program would be very costly. This was the context for earlier conversations, when in March Tenet stressed the need to consider the impact of such a large program on the political situation in the region, and in May Tenet talked to Rice about the need for a multi-year financial commitment. By July the deputies were moving toward agreement that some last effort should be made to convince the Taliban to shift position, and then, if that failed, the administration would move on the significantly enlarged covert action program. As the draft presidential directive was circulated in July, the State Department sent the deputies a lengthy historical review of U.S. efforts to engage the Taliban about bin Laden from 1996 on. These talks have been fruitless, the State Department concluded. Arguments in the summer brought to the surface the more fundamental issue of whether the U.S. covert action program should seek to overthrow the regime, intervening decisively in the civil war in order to change Afghanistan's government. By the end of a deputies' meeting on September 10, officials formally agreed on a three-phase strategy. First, an envoy would give the Taliban a last chance. If this failed, continuing diplomatic pressure would be combined with a planned covert action program encouraging anti-Taliban Afghans of all major ethnic groups to stalemate the Taliban in the civil war and attack al-Qaeda bases, while the United States developed an international coalition to undermine the regime. In phase three, if the Taliban's policy still did not change, the deputies agreed that the United States would try covert action to topple the Taliban's leadership from within. The deputies agreed to revise the Al-Qaeda presidential directive, then being finalized for presidential approval, in order to add this strategy to it. Armitage explained to us that after months of continuing the previous administration's policy, he and Powell were bringing the State Department to a policy of overthrowing the Taliban. From his point of view, once the United States made the commitment to arm the Northern Alliance, even covertly, it was taking action to initiate regime change and it should give those opponents the strength to achieve complete victory. Pakistan The Bush administration immediately encountered the dilemmas that arose from the varied objectives the United States was trying to accomplish in its relationship with Pakistan. In February 2001, President Bush wrote General Musharraf on a number of matters. He emphasized that bin Laden and al-Qaeda were, quote, a direct threat to the United States and its interests that must be addressed. End quote. He urged Musharraf to use his influence with the Taliban on bin Laden and Al Qaeda. Powell and Armitage reviewed the possibility of acquiring more carrots to dangle in front of Pakistan. 
given the generally negative view of Pakistan on Capitol Hill, the idea of lifting sanctions may have seemed far-fetched, but perhaps no more so than the idea of persuading Musharraf to antagonize the Islamists in his own government and nation. On June 18, Rice met with the visiting Pakistani foreign minister, Abdul Sattar. She, quote, really let him have it, end quote, about Al-Qaeda, she told us. Other evidence corroborates her account. But, as she was upbraiding Sattar, Rice recalled thinking that the Pakistani diplomat seemed to have heard it all before. Sattar urged senior U.S. policymakers to engage the Taliban, arguing that such a course would take time but would produce results. In late June, the deputies agreed to review U.S. objectives. Clark urged Hatley to split off all other issues in U.S.-Pakistani relations and just focus on demanding that Pakistan move vigorously against terrorism, to push the Pakistanis to do before an al-Qaeda attack what Washington would demand that they do after. He had made similar requests in the Clinton administration. He had no more success with Rice than he had with Berger. On August 4, President Bush wrote President Musharraf to request his support in dealing with terrorism and to urge Pakistan to engage actively against al-Qaeda. The new administration was again registering its concerns, just as its predecessor had, but it was still searching for new incentives to open up diplomatic possibilities. For its part, Pakistan had done little. Assistant Secretary of State Christina Rocker described the administration's plan to break this logjam as a move from half-engagement to enhanced engagement. The administration was not ready to confront Islamabad and threaten to rupture relations. Deputy Secretary Armitage told us that before 9-11, the envisioned new approach to Pakistan had not yet been attempted. Saudi Arabia the Bush administration did not develop new diplomatic initiatives on al-Qaeda with the Saudi government before 9-11. Vice President Cheney called Crown Prince Abdullah on July 5, 2001 to seek Saudi help in preventing threatened attacks on American facilities in the kingdom. Secretary of State Powell met with the Crown Prince twice before 9-11. They discussed topics like Iraq, not al-Qaeda. U.S.-Saudi relations in the summer of 2001 were marked by sometimes heated disagreements about ongoing Israeli-Palestinian violence, not about bin Laden. Military Plans The confirmation of the Pentagon's new leadership was a lengthy process. Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz was confirmed in March 2001 and Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, Douglas Feith, in July. Though the new officials were briefed about terrorism and some of the earlier planning, including that for Operation Infinite Resolve, they were focused, as Secretary Rumsfeld told us, on creating a 21st century military. At the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Shelton did not recall much interest by the new administration in military options against al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. He could not recall any specific guidance on the topic from the Secretary. Brian Sheridan, the outgoing Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict, S-O-L-I-C, the key counterterrorism policy office in the Pentagon, never briefed Rumsfeld. He departed on January 20th. He had not been replaced by 9-11. Rumsfeld noted to us his own interest in terrorism, which came up often in his regular meetings with Tenet. 
he thought that the Defence Department, before 9-11, was not organized adequately or prepared to deal with new threats like terrorism. But his time was consumed with getting new officials in place and working on the foundation documents of a new defence policy, the Quadrennial Defence Review, the Defence Planning Guidance and the existing Contingency Plans. He did not recall any particular counter-terrorism issue that engaged his attention before 9-11, other than the development of the Predator unmanned aircraft system. The commander of Central Command, General Franks, told us that he did not regard the existing plans as serious. To him, a real military plan to address Al-Qaeda would need to go all the way, following through the details of a full campaign, including the political-military issues of where operations would be based, and securing the rights to fly over neighboring countries. The draft presidential directive circulated in June 2001 began its discussion of the military by reiterating the Defense Department's lead role in protecting its forces abroad. The draft included a section directing Secretary Rumsfeld to develop contingency plans to attack both Al-Qaeda and Taliban targets in Afghanistan. The new section did not specifically order planning for the use of ground troops, or clarify how this guidance differed from the existing Infinite Resolve plans. Footnote. The Annex said that Pentagon planning was also to include options to eliminate weapons of mass destruction that the Al-Qaeda network might acquire or make. End footnote. Hadley told us that by circulating this section, a draft Annex B to the directive, the White House was putting the Pentagon on notice that it would need to produce new military plans to address this problem. The military didn't particularly want this mission, Rice told us. With this directive still awaiting President Bush's signature, Secretary Rumsfeld did not order his subordinates to begin preparing any new military plans against either Al-Qaeda or the Taliban before 9-11. President Bush told us that before 9-11 he had not seen good options for special military operations against bin Laden. Suitable bases in neighboring countries were not available, and, even if the U.S. forces were sent in, it was not clear where they would go to find bin Laden. President Bush told us that before 9-11 there was an appetite in the government for killing bin Laden, not for war. Looking back in 2004, he equated the presidential directive with a readiness to invade Afghanistan. The problem, he said, would have been how to do that if there had not been another attack on America. To many people, he said, it would have seemed like an ultimate act of unilateralism. But he said that he was prepared to take that on. Domestic Change and Continuity during the transition, Bush had chosen John Ashcroft, a former senator from Missouri, as his attorney general. On his arrival at the Justice Department, Ashcroft told us, he faced a number of problems spotlighting the need for reform at the FBI. In February, Clark briefed Attorney General Ashcroft on his directorate's issues. He reported that at the time the attorney general acknowledged a steep learning curve and asked about the progress of the coal investigation. Neither Ashcroft nor his predecessors received the President's daily brief. His office did receive the daily intelligence report for senior officials that, during the spring and summer of 2001, was carrying much of the same threat information. The FBI was struggling to build up its institutional capabilities to do more against terrorism, relying on a strategy called Max Cap 05 that had been unveiled in the summer of 2000. 
the FBI's Assistant Director for Counterterrorism, Dale Watson, told us that he felt the new Justice Department leadership was not supportive of the strategy. Watson had the sense that the Justice Department wanted the FBI to get back to the investigative basics, guns, drugs, and civil rights. The new administration did seek an 8% increase in overall FBI funding in its initial budget proposal for fiscal year 2002, including the largest proposed percentage increase in the FBI's counterterrorism program since fiscal year 1997. The additional funds included the FBI's support of the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City, Utah, a one-time increase, enhanced security at FBI facilities, and improvements to the FBI's WMD incident response capability. In May, the Justice Department began shaping plans for building a budget for fiscal year 2003, the process that would usually culminate in an administration proposal at the beginning of 2002. On May 9, the Attorney General testified at the Congressional hearing concerning federal efforts to combat terrorism. He said that, one of the nation's most fundamental responsibilities is to protect its citizens from terrorist attacks. The budget guidance issued the next day, however, highlighted gun crimes, narcotics trafficking, and civil rights as priorities. Watson told us that he almost fell out of his chair when he saw this memo, because it did not mention counterterrorism. Longtime FBI Director Louis Free left in June 2001, after announcing the indictment in the Cobar Towers case that he had worked so long to obtain. Thomas Picard was the acting director during the summer. Free's successor, Robert Mueller, took office just before 9-11. The Justice Department prepared a draft fiscal year 2003 budget that maintained but did not increase the funding level for counterterrorism in its pending fiscal year 2002 proposal. Picard appealed for more counterterrorism enhancements an appeal the Attorney General denied on September 10. Footnote. Picard told us that he approached Ashcroft and asked him to reconsider DOJ's denial of the FBI's original counterterrorism budget request in light of the continuing threat. It was not uncommon for FBI budget requests to be reduced by the Attorney General or by OMB before being submitted to Congress. This had occurred during the previous administration. End footnote. Ashcroft had also inherited an ongoing debate on whether and how to modify the 1995 procedures governing intelligence sharing between the FBI and the Justice Department's criminal division. But in August 2001, Ashcroft's deputy, Larry Thompson, issued a memorandum reaffirming the 1995 procedures with the clarification that evidence of any federal felony was to be immediately reported by the FBI to the criminal division. The 1995 procedures remained in effect until after 9-11. Footnote. In Chapter 3, we discuss how this problem arose. By 2001, it had become worse. During 2000, the FBI had erred in preparing some of its applications for FISA surveillance, misstating how much information had been shared with criminal prosecutors and the nature of the walls between the intelligence and law enforcement functions within the FBI. In March 2001, Judge Royce Lamberth, chief judge of the FISA court, chastised the FBI, sending a letter to Ashcroft announcing he was banning an offending supervisory agent from appearing before the court. 
Judge Lamberth also met personally with Ashcroft and his acting deputy, Robert Mueller, to complain about the performance of the FBI and the Office of Intelligence Policy and Review, OIPR. In July 2001, the General Accounting Office criticized the way the 1995 procedures were being applied and criticized OIPR and FBI for not complying with the information-sharing requirements of the 1995 procedures. This was the third report in as many years by a government agency indicating that the procedures were not working as planned. In October 2000, December 2000, and March 2001, proposals for reform to the 1995 procedures were put forth by senior DOJ officials. None resulted in reform. One impediment was that the respective DOJ components could not agree on all the proposed reforms. A second impediment was a concern that such reforms would require a challenge to the FISA Court's position on the matter. This was considered risky because the FISA Court of Review had never convened and one of the judges had previously voiced skepticism regarding the constitutionality of the FISA statute. Deputy Attorney General Larry Thompson did ask the Court to accept the modifications described in the text which were distributed as part of his August 2001 memorandum reaffirming the 1995 procedures. End footnote. Covert Action and the Predator In March 2001, Rice asked the CIA to prepare a new series of authorities for covert action in Afghanistan. Rice's recollection was that the idea had come from Clark and the NSC Senior Director for Intelligence, Mary McCarthy, and had been linked to the proposal for aid to the Northern Alliance and the Uzbeks. Rice described the draft document as providing for consolidation plus, superseding the various Clinton administration documents. In fact, the CIA drafted two documents. One was a finding that did concern aid to opponents of the Taliban regime, the other was a draft memorandum of notification which included more open-ended language authorizing possible lethal action in a variety of situations. Tenet delivered both to Hatley on March 28. The CIA's notes for Tenet advised him that, quote, in response to the NSC request for drafts that will help the policymakers review their options, each of the documents has been crafted to provide the agency with the broadest possible discretion permissible under the law. End quote. At the meeting, Tenet argued for deciding on a policy before deciding on the legal authorities to implement it. Hadley accepted this argument, and the draft MON was put on hold. Footnote. This tasking may have occurred before Reich's March 15, 2001 meeting with Tenet. Attorney General John Ashcroft told us he told Rice on March 7, 2001, that his lawyers had determined that the existing legal authorities for covert action against bin Laden were unclear and insufficient, and that he suggested new, explicit kill authorities be developed. As the policy review moved forward, the planned covert action program for Afghanistan was included in the draft presidential directive as part of an Annex A on intelligence activities to eliminate the al-Qaeda threat. The main debate during the summer of 2001 concentrated on the one new mechanism for a lethal attack on bin Laden, an armed version of the Predator drone. In the first months of the new administration, questions concerning the Predator became more and more a central focus of dispute. Clark favored resuming Predator flights over Afghanistan as soon as weather permitted, hoping that they still might provide the elusive, actionable intelligence to target bin Laden with cruise missiles. 
learning that the Air Force was thinking of equipping predators with warheads, Clark became even more enthusiastic about redeployment. The CTC chief Kofa Black argued against deploying the predator for reconnaissance purposes. He recalled that the Taliban had spotted a predator in the fall of 2000 and scrambled their MiG fighters. Black wanted to wait until the armed version was ready. Quote, I do not believe the possible recon value outweighs the risk of possible program termination when the stakes are raised by the Taliban parading a charred predator in front of CNN, he wrote. Military officers in the Joint Staff shared his concern. Footnote. The mission commander for the predator flights, Air Force Major Mark A. Kuter, had registered his opposition to redeploying the aircraft back in December 2000. Quote, Given the cost-benefit ratio from these continued missions, it seems senseless. End quote. End footnote. There is some dispute as to whether or not the Deputies Committee endorsed resuming reconnaissance flights at its April 30, 2001 meeting. In any event, Rice and Hatley ultimately went along with the CIA in the Pentagon, holding off on reconnaissance flights until the armed predator was ready. Footnote. CNSC Memo, Summary of Conclusions of Deputies Committee Meeting, April 30, 2001. This document noted the consensus in favor of reconnaissance missions commencing in July, but DDCI McLaughlin told us that he and Black believed that no such decision had been made at the meeting. Hadley told us he believed that a decision had been made at the meeting to fly such missions. End footnote. The CIA's senior management saw problems with the armed predator as well, problems that Clark and even Black and Allen were inclined to minimize. One, which also applied to reconnaissance flights, was money. A predator cost about three million U.S. dollars. If the CIA flew predators for its own reconnaissance or covert action purposes, it might be able to borrow them from the Air Force, but it was not clear that the Air Force would bear the cost if a vehicle went down. Deputy Secretary of Defense Wolfowitz took the position that the CIA should have to pay for it. The CIA disagreed. Footnote. Allen described the quibbling over financing the Predator program as ridiculous. End footnote. Second, Tenet in particular questioned whether he, as Director of Central Intelligence, should operate an armed Predator. This was new ground, he told us. Tenet ticked off key questions. What is the chain of command? Who takes the shot? Are America's leaders comfortable with the CIA doing this, going outside of normal military command and control? Charlie Allen told us that when these questions were discussed at the CIA, he and the agency's executive director, A.B. Buzzy Krongard, had said that either one of them would be happy to pull the trigger. But Tenet was appalled, telling them that they had no authority to do it, nor did he. Third, the Hellfire Warhead, carried by the Predator needed work. It had been built to hit tanks, not people. It needed to be designed to explode in a different way, and even then had to be targeted with extreme precision. In the configuration planned by the Air Force through mid-2001, the Predator's missile would not be able to hit a moving vehicle. White House officials had seen the Predator video of the men in white. On July 11, Hadley tried to hurry along preparation of the armed system. He directed McLaughlin, Wolfowitz and Joint Chiefs Vice-Chairman Richard Myers to deploy predators capable of being armed no later than September 1st. He also directed that they have cost-sharing arrangements in place by August 1st. 
Rice told us that this attempt by Hatley to dictate a solution had failed, and that she eventually had to intervene herself. On August 1st, the deputies' committee met again to discuss the armed predator. They concluded that it was legal for the CIA to kill bin Laden or one of his deputies with a predator. Such strikes would be acts of self-defense that would not violate the ban on assassinations in Executive Order 12333. The big issues, who would pay for what, who would authorize strikes, and who would pull the trigger, were left for the principals to settle. The Defense Department representatives did not take positions on these issues. The CIA's McLaughlin had also been reticent. When Hadley circulated the memorandum attempting to prod the deputies to reach agreement, McLaughlin sent it back with a handwritten comment on the cost-sharing. We question whether it is advisable to make such an investment before the decision is taken on flying an armed predator. For Clark, this came close to being a final straw. He angrily asked Rice to call Tenet. Either Al-Qaeda is a threat worth acting against, or it is not, Clark wrote. CIA leadership has to decide which it is, and seize these bipolar mood swings. These debates, though, had little impact in advancing or delaying efforts to make the predator ready for combat. Those were in the hands of military officers and engineers. General John Jumper had commanded U.S. Air Forces in Europe and seen predators used for reconnaissance in the Balkans. He started the program to develop an armed version and, after returning in 2000 to head the Air Combat Command, took direct charge of it. There were numerous technical problems, especially with the Hellfire missiles. The Air Force tests conducted during the spring were inadequate, so missile testing needed to continue and modifications needed to be made during the summer. Even then, Jumper told us, problems with the equipment persisted. Nevertheless, the Air Force was moving at an extraordinary pace. In the modern era, since the 1980s, Jumper said to us, I would be shocked if you found anything that went faster than this. September 2001 The Principals' Committee had its first meeting on Al-Qaeda on September 4. On the day of the meeting, Clark sent Rice an impassioned personal note. He criticized U.S. counterterrorism efforts past and present. The real question before the principals, he wrote, was, Are we serious about dealing with the Al-Qaeda threat? Is Al-Qaeda a big deal? Decision-makers should imagine themselves on a future day when the CSG has not succeeded in stopping Al-Qaeda attacks and hundreds of Americans lay dead in several countries, including the U.S., Clark wrote. What would those decision-makers wish that they had done earlier? That future day could happen at any time. Clark then turned to the coal. The fact that the USS Cole was attacked during the last administration does not absolve us of responding for the attack, he wrote. Many in Al-Qaeda and the Taliban may have drawn the wrong lesson from the coal, that they can kill Americans without there being a U.S. response, without there being a prize. One might have thought that with a $250 million hole in a destroyer and 17 dead sailors, the Pentagon might have wanted to respond. Instead, they have often talked about the fact that there is nothing worth hitting in Afghanistan, and said the cruise missiles cost more than the jungle gyms and mud huts at terrorist camps. Clark could not understand why we continue to allow the existence of large-scale Al-Qaeda bases where we know people are being trained to kill Americans. 
turning to the CIA, Clark warned that its bureaucracy, which was masterful at passive-aggressive behavior, would resist funding the new National Security Presidential Directive, leaving it a hollow shell of words without deeds. The CIA would insist its other priorities were more important. Invoking President Bush's own language, Clark wrote, You are left with a modest effort to swat flies, to try to prevent specific al-Qaeda attacks by using intelligence to detect them and friendly government's police and intelligence officers to stop them. You are left waiting for the big attack, with lots of casualties, after which some major U.S. retaliation will be in order. Rice told us she took Clark's memo as a warning not to get dragged down by bureaucratic inertia. While his arguments have force, we also take Clark's Jeremiah as something more. After nine years on the NSC staff, and more than three years as the President's national coordinator, he had often failed to persuade these agencies to adopt his views, or to persuade his superiors to set an agenda of the sort he wanted, or that the whole government could support. Meanwhile, another counter-terrorism veteran, Kofer Black, was preparing his boss for the principal's meeting. He advised Tenet that the draft presidential directive envisioned an ambitious, covert action program, but that the authorities for it had not yet been approved and the funding still had not been found. If the CIA was reluctant to use the predator, Black did not mention it. He wanted a timely decision from the principals, adding that the window for missions within 2001 was a short one. The principals would have to decide whether Rice, Tenet, Rumsfeld or someone else would give the order to fire. At the September 4th meeting, the principals approved the draft presidential directive with little discussion. Rice told us that she had, at some point, told President Bush that she and his other advisers thought it would take three years or so for their al-Qaeda strategy to work. They then discussed the armed predator. Hadley portrayed the predator as a useful tool, although perhaps not for immediate use. Rice, who had been advised by her staff that the armed predator was not ready for deployment, commented about the potential for using the armed predator in the spring of 2002. The State Department supported the armed predator, although Secretary Powell was not convinced that bin Laden was as easy to target as had been suggested. Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill was skittish, cautioning about the implications of trying to kill an individual. The Defense Department favored strong action. Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz questioned the United States' ability to deliver bin Laden and bring him to justice. He favored going after bin Laden as part of a larger airstrike, similar to what had been done in the 1986 U.S. strike against Libya. General Myers emphasized the predator's value for surveillance, perhaps enabling broader airstrikes that would go beyond bin Laden to attack al-Qaeda's training infrastructure. The principals also discussed which agency, CIA or defense, should have the authority to fire a missile from the armed predator. At the end, Rice summarized the meeting's conclusions. The armed predator capability was needed but not ready. The predator would be available for the military to consider along with its other options. The CIA should consider flying reconnaissance-only missions. The principals, including the previously reluctant tenet, thought that such reconnaissance flights were a good idea, combined with other efforts to get actionable intelligence. Tenet deferred an answer on the additional reconnaissance flights, conferred with his staff after the meeting, and then directed the CIA to press ahead with them. 
A few days later, a final version of the draft presidential directive was circulated, incorporating two minor changes made by the principals. On September 9th, dramatic news arrived from Afghanistan. The leader of the Northern Alliance, Ahmed Shah Massoud, had granted an interview in his bungalow near the Tajikistan border with two men whom the Northern Alliance leader had been told were Arab journalists. The supposed reporter and cameraman, actually Al-Qaeda assassins, then set off a bomb, riddling Massoud's chest with shrapnel. He died minutes later. On September 10th, Hadley gathered the deputies to finalize their three-phase, multi-year plan to pressure and perhaps ultimately topple the Taliban leadership. That same day, Hadley instructed DCI Tenet to have the CIA prepare new draft legal authorities for the broad covert action program envisioned by the draft presidential directive. Hadley also directed Tenet to prepare a separate section authorizing a broad range of other covert activities, including authority to capture or to use lethal force against Al-Qaeda command and control elements. This section would supersede the Clinton-era documents. Hadley wanted the authorities to be flexible and broad enough to cover any additional UBL-related covert actions contemplated. Funding still needed to be located. The military component remained unclear. Pakistan remained uncooperative. The domestic policy institutions were largely uninvolved. But the pieces were coming together for an integrated policy dealing with Al-Qaeda, the Taliban and Pakistan. End of chapter 6.5